Section 6 of Part 3 of Religious Affections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew James Gray, mjgray.id.au. Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. Section 6 of Part 3. 3. Those affections that are truly holy are primarily founded on the loveliness of the moral excellency of divine things, or, to express it otherwise, a love to divine things for the beauty and sweetness of their moral excellency is the first beginning and spring of all holy affections. Here, for the sake of the more illiterate reader, I will explain what I mean by the moral excellency of divine things. And it may be observed that the word moral is not to be understood here according to the common and vulgar acceptation of the word when men speak of morality and a moral behaviour, meaning an outward conformity to the duties of the moral law and especially the duties of the second table, or intending no more at farthest than such seeming virtues as proceed from natural principles, in opposition to those virtues that are more inward spiritual and divine as the honesty justice generosity good nature and public spirit of many of the heathen are called moral virtues in distinction from the holy faith love humility and heavenly mindedness of true christians i say the word moral is not to be understood thus in this place but in order to a right understanding what is meant it must be observed that divines commonly make a distinction between moral good and evil and natural good and evil. By moral evil, they mean the evil of sin or that evil which is against duty and contrary to what is right and ought to be. By natural evil, they do not mean that evil which is properly opposed to duty, but that which is contrary to mere nature, without any respect to the rule of duty. So the evil of suffering is called natural evil, such as pain and torment, disgrace and the like. These things are contrary to mere nature, contrary to the nature of both bad and good, hateful to wicked men and devils, as well as good men and angels. So likewise natural defects are called natural evils, as if a child be monstrous or a natural fool. These are natural evils, but are not moral evils because they have not properly the nature of the evil of sin. On the other hand, as by moral evil, divines mean the evil of sin, or that which is contrary to what is right. So by moral good, they mean that which is contrary to sin, or that good in beings who have will and choice, whereby, as voluntary agents, they are and act as it becomes them to be and to act, or so as is most fit and suitable and lovely. By natural good, they mean that good that is entirely of a different kind from holiness or virtue, viz. that which perfects or suits nature, considering nature abstractly from any holy or unholy qualifications, and without any relation to any rule or measure of right and wrong. Thus pleasure is a natural good, so is honour, so is strength, so is speculative knowledge, human learning, and policy. Thus, there is a distinction to be made between the natural good that men are possessed of and their moral good. 
and also between the natural and moral good of the angels in heaven, the great capacity of their understandings and their great strength, and the honourable circumstances they are in as the great ministers of God's kingdom, whence they are called thrones, dominions, principalities and powers, is the natural good which they are possessed of. But their perfect and glorious holiness and goodness, their pure and flaming love to God and to the saints and to one another, is their moral good. So divines make a distinction between the natural and moral perfections of God. By the moral perfections of God, they mean those attributes which God exercises as a moral agent, or whereby the heart and will of God are good, right, and infinitely becoming and lovely, such as his righteousness, truth, faithfulness, and goodness, or in one word, his holiness. By God's natural attributes or perfections, they mean those attributes wherein, according to our way of conceiving of God, consists not the holiness or moral goodness of God, but his greatness, such as his power, his knowledge, whereby he knows all things, and his being eternal from everlasting to everlasting, his omnipresence, and his awful and terrible majesty. The moral excellency of an intelligent, voluntary being is more immediately seated in the heart or will of moral agents. That intelligent being, whose will is truly right and lovely, is morally good or excellent. This moral excellency of an intelligent being, when it is true and real, and not only external or merely seeming and counterfeit, is holiness. Therefore, holiness comprehends all the true moral excellency of intelligent beings. There is no other true virtue but real holiness. Holiness comprehends all the true virtue of a good man, his love to God, his gracious love to men, his justice, his charity, and bowels of mercies, his gracious meekness and gentleness, and all other true Christian virtues that he has belong to his holiness. So, the holiness of God, in the more extensive sense of the word, and the sense in which the word is commonly, if not universally, used concerning God in Scripture, is the same with the moral excellency of the divine nature, or his purity and beauty as a moral agent, comprehending all his moral perfections, his righteousness, faithfulness, and goodness. As in holy men, their charity, Christian kindness, and mercy belong to their holiness, so the kindness and mercy of God belong to his holiness. Holiness in man is but the image of God's holiness. There are not more virtues belonging to the image than are in the original. Derived holiness has not more in it than is in that underived holiness which is its fountain. There is no more than grace for grace, or grace in the image, answerable to grace in the original. As there are two kinds of attributes in God, according to our way of conceiving him, his moral attributes, which are summed up in his holiness, and his natural attributes of strength, knowledge, etc., that constitute the greatness of God, so there is a twofold image of God in man, his moral and spiritual image, which is his holiness, that is the image of God's moral excellency, which image was lost by the fall, and God's natural image, consisting in man's reason and understanding, his natural ability and dominion over the creatures, which is the image of God's natural attribute. From what has been said, it may easily be understood what I intend, 
when I say that a love to divine things for the beauty of their moral excellency is the beginning and spring of all holy affections. It has been already shown, under the former head, that the first objective ground of all holy affections is the supreme excellency of divine things as they are in themselves or in their own nature. I now proceed further and say more particularly that that kind of excellency of the nature of divine things which is the first objective ground of all holy affections is their moral excellency or their holiness. Holy persons in the exercise of holy affections do love divine things primarily for their holiness. They love God in the first place for the beauty of his holiness or moral perfection as being supremely amiable in itself. Not that the saints in the exercise of gracious affections do love God only for his holiness. All his attributes are amiable and glorious in their eyes. They delight in every divine perfection. Contemplation of the infinite greatness, power, knowledge and terrible majesty of God is pleasant to them. But their love to God for his holiness is what is most fundamental and essential in their love. Here it is that true love to God begins. All other holy love to divine things flows from hence. This is the most essential and distinguishing thing that belongs to a holy love to God with regard to the foundation of it. A love to God for the beauty of his moral attributes leads to, and necessarily causes, a delight in God for all his attributes. For his moral attributes cannot be without his natural attributes. For infinite holiness supposes infinite wisdom and an infinite capacity and greatness. And all the attributes of God do, as it were, imply one another. The true beauty and loveliness of all intelligent beings does primarily and most essentially consist in their moral excellency or holiness. Herein consists the loveliness of the angels, without which, with all their natural perfections, their strength and their knowledge, they would have no more loveliness than devils. It is a moral excellency alone that is in itself and on its own account the excellency of intelligent beings. It is this that gives beauty to, or rather is the beauty, of their natural perfections and qualifications. Moral excellency is the excellency of natural excellencies. Natural qualifications are either excellent or otherwise according as they are joined with moral excellency or not. Strength and knowledge do not render any being lovely without holiness, but more hateful, though they render them more lovely when joined with holiness. Thus, the elect angels are the more glorious for their strength and knowledge, because these natural perfections of theirs are sanctified by their moral perfection. But though the devils are very strong and of great natural understanding, they be not the more lovely, they are more terrible indeed, but not the more amiable, but on the contrary the more hateful. The holiness of an intelligent creature is the beauty of all his natural perfections. And so it is in God, according to our way of conceiving of the divine being. Holiness is in a peculiar manner the beauty of the divine nature. Hence we often read of the beauty of holiness, Psalm 29 verse 2, Psalm 96 verse 9, and 110 verse 3. This renders all his other attributes glorious and lovely. It is the glory of God's wisdom 
that it is a holy wisdom and not a wicked subtlety and craftiness. This makes his majesty lovely, and not merely dreadful and horrible, that it is a holy majesty. It is the glory of God's immutability, that it is a holy immutability, and not an inflexible obstinacy in wickedness. And therefore it must needs be that a sight of God's loveliness must begin here. A true love to God must begin with a delight in his holiness, and not with a delight in any other attribute. For no other attribute is truly lovely without this, and no otherwise than as, according to our way of conceiving of God, it derives its loveliness from this. And therefore it is impossible that other attributes should appear lovely in their true loveliness until this is seen, and it impossible that any perfection of the divine nature should be loved with true love until this is loved. If the true loveliness of all God's perfections arises from the loveliness of his holiness, then the true love of all his perfections arises from the love of his holiness. They that do not see the glory of God's holiness cannot see anything of the true glory of his mercy and grace. They see nothing of the glory of those attributes as any excellency of God's nature as it is in itself. Though they may be affected with them and love them as they concern their interest. For these attributes are no part of the excellency of God's nature as that is excellent in itself any otherwise than as they are included in his holiness, more largely taken, or as they are a part of his moral perfection. As the beauty of the divine nature does primarily consist in God's holiness, so does the beauty of all divine things. Herein consists the beauty of the saints, that they are saints, or holy ones. It is the moral image of God in them, which is their beauty, and that is their holiness. Herein consists the beauty and brightness of the angels of heaven, that they are holy angels, and so not devils. Daniel chapter 4, verses 13, 17, and 23. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Acts chapter 10, verse 22. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. Herein consists the beauty of the Christian religion above all other religions, that it is so holy a religion. Herein consists the excellency of the word of God, that it is so holy. Psalm 119 verse 140 Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verse 128 I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Verse 138. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous, and very faithful. And verse 172. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. And Psalm 19 verses 7 to 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring for ever. 
The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Herein does primarily consist the amiableness and beauty of the Lord Jesus, whereby he is the chief among ten thousands, and altogether lovely, even in that he is the Holy One of God. Acts chapter 3 verse 14 And God's Holy Child. Acts chapter 4 verse 27 And he that is holy, and he that is true. Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 all the spiritual beauty of his human nature, consisting in his meekness, lowliness, patience, heavenliness, love to God, love to men, condescension to the mean and vile, and compassion to the miserable, etc., all is summed up in his holiness. And the beauty of his divine nature, of which the beauty of his human nature is the image and reflection, does also primarily consist in his holiness. Herein primarily consists the glory of the gospel, that it is a holy gospel, and so bright an emanation of the holy beauty of God and Jesus Christ. Herein consists the spiritual beauty of its doctrines, that they are holy doctrines, or doctrines according to goodness. And herein does consist the spiritual beauty of the way of salvation by Jesus Christ, that it is so holy a way. And herein chiefly consists the glory of heaven, that it is the holy city, the holy Jerusalem, the habitation of God's holiness, and so of his glory. Isaiah chapter 63 verse 15 All the beauties of the new Jerusalem as it is described in the two last chapters of Revelation, are but various representations of this. See chapter 21, verses 2, 10, 11, 18, 21, 27, and chapter 22, verses 1 and 3. And therefore, it is primarily on account of this kind of excellency that the saints do love all these things. Thus they love the word of God, because it is very pure. It is on this account they love the saints, and on this account chiefly it is that heaven is lovely to them, and those holy tabernacles of God amiable in their eyes. It is on this account that they love God, and on this account primarily it is that they love Christ, and that their hearts delight in the doctrines of the gospel, and sweetly acquiesce in the way of salvation therein revealed. Under the head of the first distinguishing characteristic of gracious affections, I observed that there is given to those that are regenerated a new supernatural sense, that is, as it were, a certain divine spiritual taste, which is, in its whole nature, diverse from any former kinds of sensation of the mind, as tasting is diverse from saint in the exercise of this new sense of mind, in spiritual and divine things, as entirely different from anything that is perceived in them by natural men, as the sweet taste of honey is diverse from the ideas men get of honey by looking on it or feeling it. Now this that I have been speaking of, vis-à-vis -vis the beauty of holiness, is that thing in spiritual and divine things which is perceived by this spiritual sense, 
that is so diverse from all that natural men perceive in them. This kind of beauty is the quality that is the immediate object of this spiritual sense. This is the sweetness that is the proper object of this spiritual taste. The scripture often represents the beauty and sweetness of holiness as the grand object of a spiritual taste and spiritual appetite. This was the sweet food of the holy soul of Jesus Christ. John chapter 4 verses 32 and 34 I have meat to eat that ye know not of. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. I know of no part of the Holy Scriptures where the nature and evidences of true and sincere godliness are so much of set purpose and so fully and largely insisted on and delineated as the 119th Psalm. The psalmist declares his design in the first verses of the psalm, and he keeps his eye on this design all along and pursues it to the end. But in this psalm, the excellency of holiness is represented as the immediate object of the spiritual taste, relish, appetite, and delight of God's law. That grand expression and emanation of the holiness of God's natures and prescription of holiness to the creature is all along represented as the food and entertainment, and as the great object of the love, the appetite, the complacence, and rejoicing of the gracious nature, which prizes God's commandments above gold, yea, the finest gold, and to which they are sweeter than the honey and honeycomb, and that upon account of their holiness, as I observed before. The same psalmist declares that this is the sweetness that a spiritual taste relishes in God's law. Psalm 19, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, the commandment of the Lord is pure, the fear of the Lord is clean, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. A holy love has a holy object. The holiness of love consists especially in this, that it is the love of that which is holy, as holy, or for its holiness, so that it is the holiness of the object which is the quality whereon it fixes and terminates. A holy nature must needs love that in holy things chiefly, which is most agreeable to itself. But surely that in divine things, which above all others is agreeable to a holy nature, is holiness, because holiness must be above all other things agreeable to holiness. For nothing can be more agreeable to any nature than itself. Holy nature must be above all things agreeable to holy nature. And so the holy nature of God and Christ, and the word of God, and other divine things, must be above all other things agreeable to the holy nature that is in the saints. And again, a holy nature doubtless loves holy things, especially on the account of that for which sinful nature has enmity against them. But that for which chiefly sinful nature is at enmity against holy things is their holiness. It is for this that the carnal mind is at enmity against God, and against the law of God, and the people of God. Now, it is just arguing from contraries, from contrary causes to contrary effects, 
from opposite natures to opposite tendencies. We know that holiness is of a directly contrary nature to wickedness, as therefore it is the nature of wickedness chiefly to oppose and hate holiness. So it must be the nature of holiness chiefly to tend to and delight in holiness. A holy nature in the saints and angels in heaven, where the true tendency of it best appears, is principally engaged by the holiness of divine things. This is the divine beauty which chiefly engages the attention, admiration, and praise of the bright and burning seraphim. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, and is, and is to come. So the glorified saints, chapter 15, verse 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. And the scriptures represent the saints on earth as adoring God primarily on this account, and admiring and extolling all God's attributes, either as deriving loveliness from His holiness, or as being a part of it. Thus, when they praise God for His power, His holiness is the beauty that engages them. Psalm 98 verse 1 O sing unto the Lord a new song, for He hath done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. So when they praise him for his justice and terrible majesty, Psalm 99 verses 2 and 3, The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. Verse 5, Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Verses 8 and 9. Thou wast a God that forgavest them, though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. So when they praise God for his mercy and faithfulness, Psalm 97 verses 11 and 12, light is sown for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart, Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 2 There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none besides thee, neither is there any rock like our God. By this, therefore, all may try their affections, and particularly their love and joy. Various kinds of creatures show the difference of their natures, very much in the different things they relish as their proper good one delighting in that which another abhors. Such a difference is there between true saints and natural men. Natural men have no sense of the goodness and excellency of holy things, at least for their holiness. They have no taste for that kind of good, and so may be said not to know that divine good, or not to see it. It is wholly hid from them, but the saints, by the mighty power of God, have it discovered to them. They have that supernatural, most noble and divine sense given them, by which they perceive it. 
and it is this that captivates their hearts and delights them above all things it is the most amiable and sweet thing to the heart of a true saint that is to be found in heaven or earth that which above all others attracts and engages his soul and that whereby above all things he places his happiness and which he looks upon for solace and entertainment to his mind in this world and full satisfaction and blessedness in another by this you may examine your love to god and to jesus christ and to the word of god and your joy in them and also your love to the people of god and your desires after heaven whether they be from a supreme delight in this sort of beauty without being primarily moved from your imagined interest in them or expectations from them there are many high affections great seeming love and rapturous joys which have nothing of this holy relish belonging to them particularly by what has been said you may try your discoveries of the glory of god's grace and love and your affections arising from them the grace of god may appear lovely two ways either as bonum utili a profitable good to me that which greatly serves my interest and so suits my self-love or as bonum formosum a beautiful good in itself and part of the moral and spiritual excellency of the divine nature in this latter respect it is that the true saints have their hearts affected and love captivated by the free grace of god in the first place from the things that have been said it appears that if persons have a great sense of the natural perfections of god and are greatly affected with them or have any other sight or sense of god than that which consists in or implies a sense of the beauty of his moral perfections it is no certain sign of grace as particularly men's having a great sense of the awful greatness and terrible majesty of god for this is only god's natural perfection and what men may see and yet be entirely blind to the beauty of his moral perfection and have nothing of that spiritual taste which relishes this divine sweetness it has been shown already in what was said upon the first distinguishing mark of gracious affections that that which is spiritual is entirely different in its nature from all that it is possible any graceless person should be the subject of while he continues graceless but it is possible that those who are wholly without grace should have a clear sight and very great and affecting sense of god's greatness his mighty power and awful majesty for this is what the devils have though they have lost the spiritual knowledge of god consisting in a sense of the amiableness of his moral perfections they are perfectly destitute of any sense or relish of that kind of beauty yet they have a very great knowledge of the natural glory of god if i may so speak or his awful greatness and majesty this they behold and are affected with the apprehensions of and therefore tremble before him this glory of god all shall behold at the day of judgment god will make all rational beings to behold it to a great degree indeed angels and devils saints and sinners christ will manifest his infinite greatness and awful majesty to everyone in a most open clear and convincing manner and in a light that none can resist when he shall come in the glory of his father and every eye shall see him 
when they shall cry to the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of him that sits upon the throne, they are represented as seeing the glory of God's majesty. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10, 19, and 21. God will make all his enemies to behold this, and to live in a most clear and affecting view of it, in hell to all eternity. God hath often declared his immutable purpose to make all his enemies to know him in this respect, in so often annexing these words to the threatenings he denounces against them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Yea, he hath sworn that all men shall see his glory in this respect. Numbers chapter 14 verse 21 As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And this kind of manifestation of God is very often spoken of in Scripture, as made, or to be made, in the sight of God's enemies in this world. Exodus chapter 9 verse 16, and chapter 14 verse 18, and chapter 15 verse 16, Psalm 66 verse 3, and 46 verse 10, and other places innumerable. This was a manifestation which God made of himself in the sight of that wicked congregation at Mount Sinai, deeply affecting them with it, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Wicked men and devils will see, and have a great sense of everything that appertains to the glory of God, but only the beauty of his moral perfection. They will see his infinite greatness and majesty, his infinite power, and will be fully convinced of his omniscience and his eternity and immutability and they will see and know everything appertaining to his moral attributes themselves, but only the beauty and amiableness of them. They will see and know that he is perfectly just and righteous and true, and that he is a holy God of purer eyes than to behold evil, who cannot look on iniquity, and they will see the wonderful manifestations of his infinite goodness and free grace to the saints. And there is nothing will be hid from their eyes, but only the beauty of these moral attributes and that beauty of the other attributes which arises from it. And so, natural men in this world are capable of having a very affecting sense of everything else that appertains to God, but this only. Nebuchadnezzar had a great and very affecting sense of the infinite greatness and awful majesty of God, of his supreme and absolute dominion and mighty and irresistible power, and of his sovereignty, and that he and all the inhabitants of the earth were nothing before him, and also had a great conviction in his conscience of his justice, and an affecting sense of his great goodness. Daniel chapter 4 verses 1, 2, 3, 34, 35, and 37. And in the sense that Darius had of God's perfections, seems to be very much like this. Daniel chapter 6 verse 25, etc. But the saints and angels do behold the glory of God consisting in the beauty of his holiness, and it is this sight only that will melt and humble the hearts of men, and wean them from the world, and draw them to God, and effectually change them. A sight of the awful greatness of God may overpower men's strength, and be more than they can endure. But if the moral beauty of God be hid, the enmity of the heart will remain in its full strength. No love will be enkindled. All will not be effectual to gain the will, but that will remain inflexible. 
whereas the first glimpse of the moral and spiritual glory of God shining into the heart produces all these effects, as it were, with omnipotent power, which nothing can withstand. The sense that natural men may have of the awful greatness of God may affect them various ways. It may not only terrify them, but it may elevate them, and raise their joy and praise as their circumstances may be. This will be the natural effect of it, under the real or supposed receipt of some extraordinary mercy from God by the influence of mere principles of nature. It has been shown already that the receipt of kindness may, by the influence of natural principles, affect the heart with gratitude and praise to God. But if a person, at the same time that he receives remarkable kindness from God, has a sense of his infinite greatness, and that he is but nothing in comparison of him, surely this will naturally raise his gratitude and praise the higher for kindness to one so much inferior. A sense of God's greatness had this effect upon Nebuchadnezzar, under the receipt of that extraordinary favour of his restoration, after he had been driven from men and had his dwelling with the beasts. A sense of God's exceeding greatness raises his gratitude very high, so that he does, in the most lofty terms, extol and magnify God, and calls upon all the world to do it with him. And much more, if a natural man, at the same time that he is greatly affected with God's infinite greatness and majesty, entertains a strong conceit that this great God has made him his child and special favourite, and promised him eternal glory in his highest love, will this have a tendency, according to the course of nature, to raise his joy and praise to a great height. Therefore, it is beyond doubt that too much weight has been laid by many persons of late on discoveries of God's greatness, awful majesty, and natural perfection, operating after this manner without any real view of the holy majesty of God. And experience does abundantly witness to what reason and scripture declare as to this matter. There having been very many persons who have seemed to be overpowered with the greatness and majesty of God, and consequently elevated in the manner that has been spoken of, who have been very far from having appearances of a Christian spirit and temper in any manner of proportion, or fruits in practice in any wise agreeable. But their discoveries have worked in a way contrary to the operation of truly spiritual discoveries. Not that a sense of God's greatness and natural attributes is not exceeding useful and necessary, for, as I observed before, this is implied in a manifestation of the beauty of God's holiness. Though that be something beyond it, it supposes it, as the greater supposes the less. And though natural men may have a sense of the natural perfections of God, yet undoubtedly this is more frequent and common with the saints than with natural men. And grace tends to enable men to see these things in a better manner than natural men do, and not only enables them to see God's natural attributes, but that beauty of those attributes, which according to our way of conceiving of God, is derived from His holiness. End of section 6 of part 3 Recording by Matthew James Gray mjgray.id.au